overwhelmed, talk to a healthcare worker or counselor. Have a plan where to go and how to seek help for physical and mental health needs if required. Need help and support? Please contact us at the hotline 311 Psychosocial Support at 722-6575 or 518-4157. Brought to you by PAHO, the OACS Commission and UNICEF. The opinions expressed on this TV program by the hosts, co-hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions and responsibility of the original source who expressed them. They do not necessarily represent the opinions of UTV or its affiliates. Good afternoon all sons and daughters of St. Lucia, all those who wish us well, whether you were born here or you just love this land that gave us birth, if not you, you're a citizen or you are a lover of this country, the Helen of the West Indies. It is the revolution television show sparking, hopefully, the thought and the seeds of germination for an actual revolutionary mindset because I believe firmly that that is what is needed. And we can agree and disagree and agree to disagree. It is Thursday, the 2nd of July, only seven days away from the grand reopening for tourism. Hmm. We'll get to that. But first, I need to do shout-outs. Shout-outs going to Ketra Quinlan and the Quinlan family in the USA, always locked in. Also, shout-outs to the residents of Cedar Heights and Viewfort who are always locked in. Shout-outs to all those locked in from Smugglers Cove, Cap Estate, Richford Denry, as well as the crew down in Belmont Denry. Palmer Sufre, good afternoon to you, as well as all those um, ready to go in Balata. Flora Villa Canaries, always locked in. Um, where was I? Yes. Flora Villa, Canaries, Plateau, Barbano, Victoria, Schwazel, Tiroche, Miku, Forrester, Martin Luther King Street in Viewfort, and all the Revolution Squad tune in from Roblo, Schwazel. Shout out to Mr. Garnier from Jetwin, as well as shout outs to, to all those tune in to UTV from Monrepo Union, Top, well, Hilltop Union, folks in Lance Road, Black Bay, Viewfort, folks in the Adelaide home, as well as those. Um, in for the revolution in Crestland, Soufre, um, Morshi, Beauceju, Rosalie, Grand Riviere, Denry, Opicor, Viewfort. Shout outs to Denry South, folks there, Kezia, Amy, Peterlin, Antoinette, Chad, better known as BET, Kendall Lesmore, Alicat, Hyrum, Deshe, Makala, <laughs> um, Barbara, Constable, Jackie, Cock, Liz, Khadija, 
Mugabe and Chantal. Shout outs to all those tuning in via Facebook and Instagram from Scotland, Barbados, Ottawa, Canada, as well as those linked in from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Tampa Bay, and the Lucian crew locked in from Baltimore, Maryland. Shout outs to Ian Sampson from Jetwin, always locked in. Thank you very much for that. Good afternoon to the great Mr. Wang, as well as the man Black Japanese. Good afternoon to you. Um, all those locked in from Agadlands, Cantonment, Oje, Bagatelle, Bans Labry, all those locked in from Bishop's Gap, Notre Dame Street in Groselay, Citrus Grove in Labry. Shout out to Vernon Casabor, aka Sikra of Soufre. Shout outs also to Bradley Felix. I understand you had a meeting last night for your canvassers and your campaign team. And what was strange was, I mean, I have the photos if you want the proof. That's neither here nor there. Um, but I'm trying to figure out, you've been in office for four years and you needed to make a presentation to them as to what you've done in the constituency and then you had to take questions. I mean, we're not talking about a, a community group meeting, but if you're having a constituency campaign team, shouldn't they have always known or been part of whatever it is that you achieved in the constituency, how big or how small or how in between? So now you, have to, you actually have to market to them. Shouldn't that tell you something, Mr. I'm not a politician? Anyway, finally, in fact, I would, maybe you want me to show the pictures? Just ask and I'll do it. Um, maybe not today, but still. Finally, shout out to the thousands of people who are trying desperately to access any kind of funding from the NIC. It's a kakada hustle. It's rough. People are seeing some get in front, some take in front, and they are being left behind. People are now, the popular thing to do is to show yourself or show people who are sleeping, falling asleep, going outside of the NIC, when the truth is that going to the NIC probably is not a great idea because everything is processed online. Anyway, who feels it knows it. So, this one's for you. I have a structured settlement and I need cash now. Call J.G. Wentworth, 877 cash But in the meantime, let's look to those who have strategically placed themselves to make sure that they are in the money. As a, as I, want, a... I want to start off in a strange sort of a way today because people forget these things. But it's important because how did we get here is as important as where we are at. Because what sense does it make if you have a captain who crashes you into the Titanic, um, crashes the Titanic straight into the iceberg willfully? And then people tell you you have to listen to that same captain in order to help have him get you out. On the Board of Governors of the Caribbean Development Bank, CDB, and normally the Minister of Finance, which is all is normally the Prime Minister of the country. In St. Lucia's case, we did send our Prime Minister or have our Prime Minister go to be on the Board of Governors of CDB. But if you think it's Alan Chastney, no, it's the Prime Minister's Prime Minister. As a governor on the board of governors of the Caribbean Development Bank. And he could have only been there. He could have only been there through Alan Chastney. In most, for most of the countries. is either, uh, either prime minister or minister of finance. You could scroll now. Antigua. Antigua, it is the Prime Minister. Barbados, the Minister of Finance, the Governors. Belize, the Prime Minister.
that's the governor on the board. Dominica, the prime minister, that's the governor on the board. Grenada, the prime minister, that's the governor on the board. Guyana, the minister of finance. Haiti, the minister of finance. Jamaica, the minister of finance. St. Kitts, the prime minister. St. Lucia, Guy Joseph. St. Lucia, Guy Joseph. I wouldn't call out all the others. You know, can you imagine, folks? In every instance, it is either the prime minister or the minister of finance. Alan Shastney says nothing else to do than to insult St. Lucia. Insult St. Lucia by placing Guy Joseph as a governor on the board of governors of the Caribbean Development Bank. There is nothing that the Caribbean Development loves, Caribbean Development Bank loves more than consultants. Nothing. Every single project must have consultants. Everyone. It's an industry. And the Caribbean Development Bank in particular has a fascination for Canadian consultants. It's not often you get them appointing regional consultants, except when it suits their purposes, for example, like assessment of poverty reduction. They may use a firm out of Trinidad whose um, credentials I myself have great difficulty with, but be that as it may. So, the moment the Caribbean Development sees a proposal for consultants, it latches on to it. Latches on to it. And uh, by the time they're finished, they have their consultants all lined up. I have always said to the European Union, you do an independent audit of the procedures that you are utilizing to assess projects, to monitor projects. Now you hear a lot of talk about hospitals, Mr. Speaker. The OKEU hospital. Yes, the hospital was the brainchild of the former St. Lucia Labour Party government. And that's one of the problems today. But I'll choose my words on another occasion. But I'll say this. That hospital has now taken over eight years to bring to life. And I'm not today going to engage in blaming this side over delays or changes they made with the hospital. That's not my point today. And you know why, Mr. Speaker? One of the fundamental reasons why it has taken so long has to do with the European Union. Had to do with procurement processes. Had to do with the fact that that organization was not able to respond quickly and adeptly to the various proposals and recommendations coming from the public sector functionaries in the country. I have had the opportunity to interact with all the major agencies at our doorsteps. World Bank, European Union, Caribbean Development Bank, OFID, you, you name it, Kuwaiti Fund, 
But there are three of those who constantly blame lack of implementation on local authorities and local personnel. All the time they do it, Mr. Speaker. You look at the rate of implementation, for example, of the European Union in the Caribbean. And you will discover that that rate of implementation is abysmally low. Abysmally low. Every year you come to the House in a budget, you announce what the allocations are for, and then in the course of the year, you look for the results, they are never there. And whenever you tackle the European Union, they always tell you that it has to do with the lack of capacity in the various governments. So what does all of this mean? Well, first of all, you know how they say the piper always has to get paid. There is no accident to Alan Chastney's leadership of the United Workers' Party being engineered in the constituency office of Castries Southeast. All of the complaints of delegates who were deregistered and new delegates that were registered and the victory for Chastney in, the, in his convention of the United Workers' Party. More than once, everybody got good. They got what they wanted, and he got the leadership. And Guy Joseph had his pole position guy, his Manchurian candidate, as it were. Now, this is where it gets to the part where we ask ourselves, how did we get here financially? How did we get here? Nobody noticed, but it was, fine. It was exposed by COVID. Well, I keep using the same analogy. The problem with these guys, and it's the same person, Victor Marquis of Cabbages and Kings in the Voice newspaper that said, he wrote something on Facebook. He said before, when politicians used to thief, they used to do a project, and if somebody got something on the side, you know, something, a quass on the side, or they shave off 5%, maybe even 10% somewhere. But it's the other way around with these guys. They literally want the money first and then they'll put some little, they won't even, they'll have a sod turning. They'll show you a graphic rendering. But the project itself, until literally year four, they won't even try to bother. Whether it's a tourism this or it's a construction that. And with this, I keep using the same analogy as well. So one of them comes there and they don't say, boy, there's a hundred loaves of bread. My share should be five. But I'll be greedy and I'll take 20 or I'll take 40. So Timothy will come and Timothy will say that he wants 50 or 60. But not even that. You have fellas come in and they say, Gasa, you see that? Give me the whole 100. Give me all 100 loaves and go and take a loan to get more. And here comes Permandu. Permandu brought into St. Lucia to give us a strategic development plan, a vision plan, head of vision planner, from January 1990, sorry, 2019, from January 2019 to December 2022. And we are already in 2020. No plan delivered yet.
everybody was put into different groups. And these groups had to come up with the key areas. And then you had to vote. And nobody knew where the other person was voting because each person was given their own voting device to vote. And that is how we came up with the list of areas that we believe would be game changers in St. Lucia. I, we were very happy about the approach specifically because it focused in two key areas. The area of economic growth and development and the area of meeting the social needs of the country. I know of late, even what appears on the social side is now being, can also fit under the economic side. And I will highlight some of that as we go along. Our focus on the labs methodology would be in a couple of phases, and I would allow the persons who are handling the labs to give you greater details of how it is going to work, the timelines, and what we expect to accomplish. But in the medium term, we expect that by 2022, we would have realized what we are discussing here to a great measure. So what we are finding is that a lot of our projects are delayed because the synergies that are required are not there. Ministries are operating in silos a lot of times. And we want to come to the house and pretend that everything is nice and proper. We are dropping in the ratings. Not because our position is lower, so let's take the ease of doing business. But it's because of what other countries are doing to advance themselves. So even when we may be in a position where we have done certain things... Other countries may be doing more than us in the process. So coming back to these labs and these workshops, and people come to us as ministers every day, highlighting the inefficiencies in the systems. What we have done as a government in April of this year, based on discussions with CDB, because Caribbean Development Bank is positioned to help in the growth and development of this region. They interact with all governments in the region and they are able to highlight the areas of deficiencies and weaknesses. So St. Lucia was chosen. And he reminded me of a very famous children's story, Alice in Wonderland where Alice said she did not want to go among the mad people. And then the cat said, but we're all mad in here. How could you not want to be among the mad people? And the member from Cassie's office is a sack of contradictions, a bag of contradictions. And I want to focus on this bill and to take you through a few points. Motion. The, the motion. The member stood up and he said, the Labour Party came into power and they had no vision. How could you come to government and you have no vision? And you wanted to have a vision commission. But in the same breath he says, 
basically, we do not know what to do to build a sustainable developing society by 2022, so we're hiring, spending $13 million for somebody to tell us or to assist us to get to know what we have to do. But it's the same person who said, how can you come into government and not know what it is you have to do? But if you knew what you had to do, why are you having this? Why are you having it? Because you boasted, you knew what had to be done. But now you're going to spend $13 million for you to be assisted. Mr. Speaker, it took the government two and a half years to realize they did not really know what they were about. Two and a half years. <laughs> two and a half years to now realize they did not know what they were about. And they now need workshops to tell them what has to be done for the next three years. But the member from Cassie South is let the cat out of the bag. Hear what he said. We are dropping in the ratings. We are dropping in the ratings. So of course there is a need for this. He also said things are not nice and proper. So yes, there is a need for this, Lord. He also said, Mr. Speaker, projects are being delayed. So yes, there is a need for this, Lord. But all of us in here would recall execute, execute, execute. You remember this? Yes. Mr. Speaker? We are the masters in execution. We don't need no advice from you all on the other side. Two and a half years later, there is no execution. No, man, there is. There is no execution. We need CDB to come and have labs with us, have workshops with us, to the tune of $13 million so we can learn how to execute now. Is the Sufra Square executed? Is Radio St. Lucia executed? And Mr. Speaker, when we started this morning, I noticed the mics were not working. You can imagine what came into my, to my mind. Whether or not next month is the last month for this building, because we were told Parliament building, the courthouse, and the print will be broken down by the end of the year. So I was wondering whether that was already a sign of the breaking down of the building. Execution again, Mr. Speaker. Execution. So if the Honorable Member, and he said he is the Minister of Economic Development, because he's the master executor, and he comes there today to tell us we don't know what we have to do for the next three years, so we're borrowing $13 million so we can have workshops and we can now decide what is needed to achieve a sustainable developing society. The exact words of the member from Cassius office. Now I'm left to wonder, you spend more time in government than you have left and you're only now trying to decide what it is that you have to do. The Prime Minister himself said in the House they got an offer from Pomandu. I want you to, you know, when I do my thing, I investigate. When I heard it come from the mouth of the Prime Minister, I wanted to know who Pomandu was. Take a listen to the Prime Minister himself. So we had, a, we had a, an offer from a company called Pyramandu. Pyramandu was a, a company that did the similar thing for Malaysia. And Malaysia became one of the fastest growing countries in a very competitive region of the world. Folks, this 
cannot be further from the truth. Permandu. You know, you all remember when the Prime Minister brought Tio King in Parliament and gave him such tremendous acclamation that he would have delivered sovereign hope. Two and a half years later, the hope is still in the pipeline. All we have is nope, but hope is gone. And you all remember at Sandals, when they had this press briefing or whatever presentation in relation to the SH, how he referred to Jack Lamb. He was so pleased to have Jack Lamb down here that Jack Lamb is a tycoon in terms of entertain, entertainment. That same Jack Lamb we found out was wanted all over the place. Same way he bragged about John Lockerbie being a giant in sports facilities implementation. Whereas ESPN referred to him as a huge failure, big ideas, little implementation. Permandu, the company that we, the taxpayers of this country, have to give $13 million to. 13 million to tell us what to do have been described in the Malaysian papers as a colossal failure. I want to show you three different articles in relation to Permandu because you know the world is small. And I could never forget I was on my construction site when I heard Shasta referring to Jack Lamb in such glowing terms that I felt the compunction to do my search on Jack Lamb and only to realize Jack Lamb was wanted. So I decided that I need to check out Permandu. And so I did, folks. Permandu, like I said, was described as a colossal failure in the papers out of Malaysia. Could you put up this first story, please? On Pumandu. Yes. Half a billion colossal failure. This is the first one on Pumandu. You know, so when you see persons come down here and we are being introduced to them as though they are, tycoon, they are tycoons in whatever form, we need to take that with a grain of salt, especially when it comes from the mouth of the Prime Minister. Now I will not read this article, it's too lengthy. But in a nutshell, the Malaysians are saying that what Permandem 
Perman do want them to believe and what exists in reality are totally different they're miles apart from each other yet you have the prime minister introducing them as you know they are some kind of kingpins of advice and what is worse in an environment and culture that is totally foreign to them so you saw the first article headline a colossal half a billion colossal failure in the other article Pomandu is it's on screen now they are accused of hiding economic transformation data they are accused of that of hiding the failure sorry of the economic transformation program it says i'll just read one sentence in the fifth paragraph for you permanent so-called target is underwe- underwhelming taken at face value Permandu is dragging down the Malaysian economy instead of transforming it. I will read this again. Permandu's so-called target is underwhelming. Taken at face value, Permandu is dragging down the Malaysian economy instead of transforming it. You all hear this? So you get the picture, folks? A company, a loan was taken for $13 million. Now, coincidentally or not, to all the public servants out there who they wanted to shove bonds down your throat or up your, well, whatever, the bonds, according to the government, were supposed to get, were supposed to tidy up $14 million that they needed to find for public servants. It only amount to $14 million. And here you have $13 million, a loan being taken from CDB, of which Guy Joseph is governor and piloting the project to give a vision plan. The same government that said that they have been running on the vision plan of Sir John, the quadrant plan prepared by as an assemblage of, of public and private sector vision plans that were assembled by Osbert Dovey and piloted by Sir John in his last budget speech, which they are still following. Yet, Permandu was to design a short-term vision plan for January 2019 to 2022. They have yet to deliver on that, but we still have to pay them full price for what they haven't done and haven't delivered in time. They knew nothing and know nothing about our country. So, they spent the first year just having meetings with people and trying to figure out where is Grosile, what the population is, what is Castri size, what is the history of St. Lucia, that type of a thing. Now, you will see no accident, St. Lucia, that as we are cash-strapped, 
cannot take care of the elderly properly, have problems with healthcare, education, infrastructure, and everything else. Once again, the FFF doctrine continues. Because Pomandu is from Malaysia. You mean Teoa King is from Malaysia, Pomandu is from Malaysia, Gail and them even went to Malaysia to get the garbage incinerators company to make the incinerators. And this company was not a well-established company. This was a startup company to do incinerators once again in Malaysia. And the invoices from those incinerate, that incinerator company are interesting because they seem to have changed and become much more inflated over time. So Teo King has the horse race track, Malaysia, the garbage, um, the landfill is closed in Viewfort, and the company which gets the $18 million worth of incinerators and all the rest that has to be done, that is Malaysian again. What is our solution's track record with Malaysia? We know we have a track record with England, with Canada. We know we have a track record with the United States, Dominica. Where's our track record with Malaysia for us to be good, giving them so much business that we're even willing to take a loan to bring down their consultants? But here's the worst part of the racket. Just imagine all of the institutional memory in the public service. All of the public servants who get paid a salary to develop vision plans, whether it's to deal with yachting or agriculture or tourism, infrastructure, urban planning for cities, housing developments, all of that. What Perman do? is doing or what they have been doing is they've been going to public sector workers taking the same documents that are already part of the government's information part of its institutional knowledge they will then go to former consultants and prospective consultants or whatever people in the private sector get their ideas and documents that they have submitted proposals whether it is to deal with yachting whether it is to deal with um tourism or reforms in customs uh, and excise or whatever it is and they literally are just billing for the same thing so imagine the government is paying permandu for documents and intellectual properties it already has so imagine you're paying somebody in ministry of finance for some sort of a financial planning document you wouldn't have to pay him because you're already paying him a salary of ten twelve thousand dollars a month or something like that Permandu is requesting that document from that guy or lady, taking that document and presenting it to the cabinet and to the government office of the prime minister. And they're getting money for that, $13 million. And what they've also done is to include a couple of the senior hacks of the government, people like Agnes and Osbert, you know, and so on. And you hear all kinds of people getting it good under that loan. But when that loan is finished... And we literally recycle the same plans that we already had. Permandu gets to walk away, even though their reputation in Malaysia is complete crap. In St. Lucia, they'll walk away. CDB don't give a damn. Our governor on CDB don't give a damn because, hey, somehow that must come back to him as well. And at the end of it all, St. Lucians have to pay that back while we can't find money. But like they say, some people know how to use money. To create wealth. With that kind of reasoning. And when I said to a member, you don't understand anything about financing. They want to tell me, oh, is you that's the guru? I'm not no guru. What I know is how to use money <laughs> to gain wealth.
In an effort to ensure patient and first responder safety, the St. Lucia Fire Service has reviewed its patient transfer procedures, especially for patients with respiratory distress. Face masks will be provided. At no time during transportation should the face mask be removed. Please be patient and cooperative during this time to ensure you receive the best possible care while keeping our first responders safe. Welcome back to The Revolution, and thank you for staying with us. Those of you locked in on HITS Radio, 92.1 in the North, 91.1 in the South. Man versus woman, what I call the battle of the sexes. Very interesting this morning, followed by Mornings with Trisha Lionel. And now here we are in the middle of the revolution. And we have to take a look at, sadly, more squander mania, as a gentleman from the Viewfort Fisheries um, aptly put it with regards to this government. And... Folks, it's very simple. You can build the biggest, fanciest building that you want anywhere in the world. If you want to call it a hospital and have people be able to practice medicine in there, and that is an international requirement, it's not something St. Lucia can just do. You must have accreditation. The only reason, the very simple and only reason why they must build a polyclinic in Viewfort is that they would not get accreditation for anything else. At this stage, you can only build a health center. That's all. It will not get accreditation to do any of the type of, of delivery of healthcare service that even the George Odlum Stadium is offering right now. Because George Odlum will pass as a temporary hospital and it will almost like a field hospital. But so long as they're talking about permanence, they will never get any of the PAHO or World Health Organization um, protocols to overlay on that facility. The next thing is that, from what I'm gathering, they have not had a single conversation with the people at St. Jude. Now, you can't design a hospital and not talk to the user groups and the director of healthcare or the, the chief surgeon at St. Jude. To, for them to guide you with their own protocols and their their templates, medical templates, for how you use every single room in that space. Given that they have not done so, and from what I gathered from the health planner, even the Ministry of Health does not know what is going on down there. So they are building four walls, a roof and a floor, Claiming that it will be a 90-bed unit, it could not be, and it will never be a hospital, a 90-bed unit. It has to be accredited for any surgeon to practice in. Otherwise, such a surgeon can be barred from practice. So I don't know who is guiding them. They, they know full well they're not going to deliver anything called hospital. 
it's going to be like a health center no more than that um so we we, we can be clear on that that they ain't going to happen we, they will not be able to talk to accreditation canada or any other accreditation body if they have not yet started to speak to them and had they been speaking to them they would have had full designs to show to us and we would have known we would have had on ground people would have been speaking out already none of that is happening these guys are building a shell a factory shell the hospital um, is a no-no for viewport and the horses have a better deal in viewport right now than any average citizen of this country you see it doesn't matter how big or glorious the facility is or how expensive and how much weight on the backs of our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren it will put the fact of the matter is that the facility, if it is, doesn't have accreditation bodies attached to it from the get-go, will not be accredited. The existing St. Jude structure had Accreditation Canada involved in it. St. Jude's has a long history of international affiliation, and they were even commissioning teams for the existing structures, some of which were done under Stevenson King and the rest that were done under Kenny Anthony's administration. But this cash grab, fresh start project, along with the Minister for Economic Development, cannot be a general hospital. It can only be a level four polyclinic, which is a step down. And no matter how big it is, the fact of the matter is, when you really think about it, now it's just been done for political shows. So now the big thing to say is that the framework is 70% complete or 80% or 90%. Even if the framework is complete, it's only the first phase. Even though they get, where they're getting the money for the second phase, the third phase, how long it's going to take, and then how you're going to operationalize that when you are the ones that were saying that it's $80 million to operate OKEU and the, and, um, St. Jude's. $50 million for OKEU and $30 million for St. Jude's. Now you have doubled the size of the place. And it's not going to be accredited anytime soon. So even if you manage to get it accredited, most likely it will only be accredited by people who probably know the ins and outs of it, like Cayman, the Indian company, or Nirandaya, whatever. But the worst part of it is that after all of that, it's all just so that, and let's be honest, you want to win an election, your people don't want facts. They just want stuff that they can say, you know, like Minerva and them, they can just say, oh, look at, look at St. Jude's. It looks beautiful. It looks magnificent. Yes, it does. It looks wonderful. It looks beautiful. Because it's all about surface level news. It's like when you listen to Andrea and Russell. They just talk on a surface level. They don't take phone calls. So they just talk in soliloquy. And you know, it's like two when they have Charlie there. Three UWP hacks basically, you know, basically taking care of each other, massaging each other, and patting themselves on the back. And that's how the cognitive dissonance things work. People don't want the facts. They just want things for themselves. Well, let's go through. Two sets of, of, of information. They're not incongruent. But let's see if you can rescue your own perspective. I'm very, very excited. And you know, look, we have two new call centers. Um, you know, Ojo is expanding. Mm -hmm. And then we have a new call center starting in the middle of June in, in Viewfort, which are creating jobs. Um, we're also seeing the employment from St. Jude's. I mean, St. Jude's is looking oh, yeah, it's great. absolutely Beautiful. amazing. Um, and again, you know what? 
that's a project that's I think going to break the back of all the naysayers. Oh yeah. And when people see that hospital and see the 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 standard of that hospital compared to what was being offered before, I have no doubt that all the pressure that we're taking that people will go, go away. okay, wow, yeah. you know, yeah. hats off to the government. But we'll, we'll, it will soon soon come. So we are at the entrance of the building. Um, that will be the main access point to the hospital from the St. Jude's Road. Um, that's where visitors and patients will be entering the hospital. And at the entrance, you'll you, once it is complete, you'll once you enter the hospital, there'll be a, a very large lobby area with very high ceiling and also reception and. Um, so within this reception area, we have a ramp and two steps that will take you from the entrance of the building to the first floor as well as the roof. This new um, hospital we're building, we have actually three buildings. Um, we have a very large main building and then we have two auxiliary, we have two auxiliary buildings. Um, the two auxiliary buildings, Block A and Block B, that that will house dialysis and physiotherapy. The main the main building, which is block C, D, E, F, and G, that's where the main hospital function will be carried out. This is a very modern hospital, and um, we went the the designers went to in lens to actually make sure that that all if we have all facilities that are available to a modern hospital. Um, we even have. Um, a helipad on the roof where in a case of emergency in case of any in case any patients have to be transported by um, that means by air or by helicopter it can land on the roof and that patient can be transported and we started in October um, at the end of October and right now we're probably about 80% complete so the project we, we divided the project into several um, phases we have um, the structural phase, we have the cladding phase, we have the MAP phase. Right now we are at the structural phase, which involves just the skeleton of the building, which is columns, beams, slabs, and any other concrete structures. In all, we have six components in those structures, and we, we subdivided the, the works into groups of, there are 10 subcontractors executing those works, such that we could move as quickly as possible. I started here from the beginning, the first barrel concrete that put here, I put it. Yeah, I put that, right? And then from the time I started, I never had a problem with no worry. I moved from the building to from work. From the form work, Sir Peter called me and he told me he had something better for me. I asked him, what is it? And he gave me the Bayesley building. And I started Bayesley building up to where is it right now. Well, under the project, we, we have a we had the, those contractors had their own crew. We have a steel contract steel contractor who had about 120 workers employed. Then each other contractors may have about 15 to 20 workers employed with them. On, on average, we have about maybe 200 workers employed. The original completion date for the project was for that for that phase of the project, which is a structural phase, 
The original completion date was set at in the end of May. Since we broke the work down into several components, the work has moved quite quickly. We were ahead of schedule initially, but the COVID uh, set us back a little bit. We're looking at a new projected completion date of sometime in mid-July. That's for the structural phase, which is the actual skeleton of the building. Okay, once the structural phase is complete, we'll move to um, a second, the second phase of the project, which is the cladding phase. And then there's another phase, which is the MEP, which is mechanical, electrical, and plumbing phase. And once MEP and cladding is complete, then there comes finishing and civil works phase of the project, which is roads and, and uh, the final completion of the project. Now let's be honest, beyond what the gentleman said on the site, you have to admit that these renderings are queneristically impressive. Just like Tewa King's renderings, Herod had renderings for Sufre, they have renderings for the airport. Miss say boy, if there's one set of people that get good under this government outside of the FFF, although they're part of the FFF, are all the people that make renderings before in the days of Sir John, people actually used to want to see physical infrastructure like the Compton Dam or the Compton Highway or Victoria Hospital. No, not anymore. You can win a whole election just on renderings. Renderings of view for 2040, 2050. You know, renderings with dolphins and renderings with, with um, parrots and planes and cruise ships and, you know, all kinds of uh, people walking in the park with their children. Now, note well, I let the whole, I played it there. And it's, nobody's arguing with that. I'm not going to argue, I'm not an engineer. I'm not in planning or whatever, whatever. That's not my point. But folks, let's face it, as elections draw closer... People are looking for ammunition one way or the other. So the ammunition is, oh, you were complaining about St. Jude's, but look, we're working on it. UWP will say that. Labor Party will say, but you all stopped it for two and a half years. Then UWP will say, but we had to check out how the project was going. And Labor Party will tell you, but you don't need to stop a project. You don't need to stop a project to audit it. It's a pressing matter. And back and forth it will go. So now... As long as there is a big, glorious um, building, whether it is complete or incomplete, whether the people who are in the George Odlum Stadium now, the doctors, the nurses, the patients, the orderlies, everybody in between, the ambulance drivers, the laundry people, and everything else, everyone else could have been located in the East Wing right now under three months and under $9 million, according to the SLMDA's engineers that they brought on site. We have hurricane season literally on our doorstep. And nobody's protesting for that. 
We have been beaten into submission while we allow Guy Joseph and Shastney, and make no mistake, Shastney is part of it. Everything Guy does is part Shastney. Never forget that. From 2007, you just have to go on YouTube. You can go on right now and just type in two ministers talk Namda, and you can see where they became Siamese in what they do. Well, nonetheless, you have a choice. You can listen to Mark Hennicott and think of him in his professional capacity. You can think of him as a sympathizer of the opposition. You can think of him as, you know, oh, I'm not listening to Mitt because Mitt just bias against the government. You know, I can say Mitt, Mitt don't do nothing. Mitt never, Mitt, Mitt, the company Mitt working for, don't have no kind of track record. And then you hear, well... They built Coco Palm. Yeah, they built HTS. Yeah, they were involved in Harbor Club. Yeah, they were involved in OKEU. Yeah, they were involved in St. Jude's. So maybe the man does know what he's talking about. Or maybe not. It's up to you. So I'm letting you listen to the assessment. I too, like many other viewers, perused the Prime Minister's Facebook timeline last week and observed the status report on the St. Jude Hospital accompanied by some very decent images, especially aerial images of the site. However, the preamble inserted that the works had been delayed for just over a month due to COVID-19. The structure approximately 70% complete. About 400 workers are currently employed on the site and the, the hospital is expected to deliver a 90-bed facility and the, the new works you know shall incorporate everything that was expected to be contained within the eastern surgical wing at the original St. Jude Hospital and it promised also to integrate some of the existing buildings to achieve a fully functional hospital to match what it referred to as a level 4 facility. Notwithstanding, I think a few questions still need to be answered. For instance, the health facility um, authorities have not disclosed whether the current project designs or even the works going on on site have been modified to meet any new spatial protocols required for planning, designing, and even constructing new healthcare facilities to mitigate especially contagion in the post-COVID. The report states that the project is 70% complete or the structure is 70% complete, but it begs the question, what exactly would constitute 100% completion? Because if we agree that a hospital is not only the walls the roof, the floors, the frame, but all the requisite furniture, fixtures, equipment, personnel that go into delivering health care in a general hospital, then what should we expect and when should we expect this new hospital to be commissioned and operationalized to the benefit of St. Lucians and in particular the citizens of Fewfort and the South? Also, the report was very silent on the burning question of cost and delivery. So we do not know what it will eventually cost, nor did it say when we expect the project to be completed. But 
notwithstanding the aerial images were very instructive and they, they placed into context exactly how the new wing is fitting into or dovetailing into the existing buildings that were that were um, terminated or suspended the construction of which have been suspended since 2016 however we can conclude that the current works comprise only a frame of beams, columns, slabs, and roof slabs and floor slabs. We can conclude also that there are no walls, external or internal, and these remain outstanding. Services, services typical of a hospital, including plumbing and drainage, electrical, lighting, electrical power, the gases, air conditioning, fire protection, CCTV, even a paging system it remains outstanding. All the doors, windows, corridors, passages, internal partitions and means of exit in and out of the building are also outstanding. And of course all finishes including floor finishes, wall finishes and ceiling finishes are outstanding. From the photographs when you zoom in it's evident that what the industry refers to as first fix services which are the containment of plumbing and drainage lines and electrical conduits are not noticeable on the, from the photographs. Also when you take a close look at the reinforced concrete frame it is easy to locate the double columns and these are indicative of exactly where the separation joints are in such a large structure. These separation joints or expansion joints serve to safeguard the building from the effects of differential settlement. It's so large that you have to break it up into smaller units, independent units, and uh, these also provide resistance for one building to a next in the event of seismic activity earthquake activity. However, separation joints in structures like this hospital have to be provided for in a safe manner because they can compromise the integrity of the structure and provide um, com compromise the, the ability for the transfer or, or, or prevention of transfer of heat and fire from one part of the building to another, both horizontally in functional spaces as well as vertically between floors. And it is conceivable that, just like in the case of OKEU, that provisions such as a sprinkler system may be in place to safeguard lives and, and fixtures, equipment in the event of a fire and protect the building. But in the case of OKEU and to a certain extent to the original St. Jude Hospital, we saw how functional space was configured in the layout through the wings. At OKU, we have like a hand, a provision for five fingers of a hand. At St. Jude, you had a cruciform shape that was mirrored, so you have wings, a west wing, a surgical wing, an east wing. So in the event of a fire, wings, as we saw in 2009, could have been isolated and 
protected from heat and from fire, from damage, had not the decision been taken, for instance, at St. Jude, to condemn the whole of the site and uh, relocate the services or the delivery of services to the George Odlum Stadium, nothing could have precluded the works from continuing while the parts of the facility remained operational. But albeit that was not done, and uh, we are still operating St. Jude out of the George Odlum Stadium. But what obtains now on site is a case of everything under one roof. So that, God forbid, if you have a fire in one part of that facility, you can compromise the entire facility through the transfer of smoke, fire, or even heat. And furthermore, in, in trying to combat a fire, you can do substantial damage with the water or other or other means of extinguishing the fire can do damage to a facility like that. So in laying it out, one can understand that it was being constructed on a restricted part of the site, which was almost a triangular in shape. So it was fitted to that part of the site. But you also have to consider the means of safeguarding that building or the levels within that building in the event of a fire and not just the protection internally, but you have to look at externally as well. I think there are many other observations that can be flagged from the photographs. However, it would be premature at this stage to comment on them, especially against the matters of site planning and the site services, the layout of the existing um, drainage on the site, and where the new wing is located and uh, the disparity in level between where original services and infrastructure surfacing the original site are located relative to this new building and whether there would be a need to duplicate all those services or part of those services. The question of car parking, for instance, and the amenity spaces that went with the original design. This new wing has been surmounted on what otherwise would have been a recreational space and space allocated to car parking. That is has gone now and we would live to see what the new provisions will be for more parking on a more expansive site. In my view, however, and contrary to what has been reported, the project is no more than 10 to 15 percent complete. But the images present only a structural frame. The envelope of the building is wide open and left to a lot of speculation. Moreover, the overall area of the complex has been increased from approximately 165,000 square feet to now more than 310,000 square feet. And that that projection is based on what the Minister for Economic Development had disclosed at the time of the Sotunin ceremony in July of 2019. It is also conceivable that at a unit cost of 600 EC dollars a square foot, an additional amount of 100 million EC dollars is required to complete the construction. And then perhaps a further 20% of that figure which would be 20 million EC dollars to fit it out with FF&E because 
FFME as we understood that had already been procured was to be used in the original St. Jude but if the original St. Jude buildings are going to be part of the new scheme then we still have to make provision for fitting out the new scheme so easily 120 million EC dollars is expected to be required or is conceivable to be the, the budget to finish that hospital, polyclinic, whatever is under construction. But more so that given where it is at and the amount of time it has taken to get to that point, it is easy to imagine another three to five years before that building or those buildings are operationalized and the George Odlam Stadium can be decommissioned. St. Lucia, you asked for it and we're making it happen. Revolution t-shirts are now available island-wide in Groselay at Nesta's Bar in Grand Riviere, at Dax Supermarket in the Richard Frederick Building in Castries, Marilyn's Restaurant and Bar at the Daito Fisheries Complex in Denry, Hippolyte's in Soufret Town, as well as in Beaufort at Chanel's Upstairs, the Chanel's Plaza. Revolution t-shirts can also be ordered through Johnson for those in the Miku area, from Nyla in the Chozel to Labry area, as well as Diana in the Ancillary Canneries districts. And if you require any other information, please call our National Coordinator Dantes at 486-7658. That's 486-7658. Anytime, day or night. All sizes, all colors. Get your Revolution t-shirts today. None but ourselves can free our minds. Yo, 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 TV, yo, TV. I know you got it. If you identify with the most pulsating, the most riveting, the most eye-capturing, UTV. To advertise with UTV, dial 484-7588 or 572-7588. For some of the most competitive rates, amazing programming, and bang for your buck. The most popular streaming channel, UTV124 on Facebook. Get it now! Check us out on Instagram at UTV124. Email us utvslu at gmail.com. UTV. It's not just for me. It's definitely TV for you. Hollywood HB, beginning up UTV, you don't know the baddest and the greatest. UTV Underground Station, you mad. Thank you for staying with the revolution. All of those locked in on UTV124 on Facebook and, of course, on Instagram and on Twitch. Also, those of you locked in on Hits Radio, North of South, and, of course, those of you locked in on cable. Now, 
In the same way that we must give the government commendation for its handling of the healthcare response to the COVID coronavirus pandemic. There must be a part of you, especially all the parents out there, no matter what the age of your child is, you must feel a little bit ashamed of how the education component has been handled, mishandled, bungled, fumbled, or if it just downright exposed the incompetence. And the worst part is that you have to somehow explain that to your children. Everything now seems to be ad hoc, trying to save face. I don't know that much consideration has been given, given to the psychological effects that these children have undergone through all of the various permutations that have come with COVID and Corona. And I do not know how many parents are wondering how they are able to sustain their children when they can't sustain them at home, let alone give them money or food or transportation to get them to school, to do exams. Now you have some sort of exam, even with CXCs. You now have an entrance exam for Sir Arthur as well as uh, some sort of uh, strange or reduced or some watered down or maybe just whatever you want to call it version of CXE. And that's just for CXE students, notwithstanding all of those that are still at home, not getting back to school and the amount of underprivileged children who did not have laptops. But, of course, we always have a very well-spoken Minister for Education. We can well imagine the administrative course, the administrative costs. Can I say that again? We can well imagine the administrative cost. How can you, how can you? Yep. But you know what? The Labour Party has a prospective or at least a shadow minister for education if he were ever to be given a chance because he's running the seat again for the Labour Party, against Alan Shastny himself. And the funny thing for me is that I find Gibo to be one of the more impressive candidates in terms of somebody who's well-spoken, his, um, both in English and in Patois, he's charismatic. Um, it doesn't hurt that he's a good-looking guy, you know, and done, done all of these things. And he's done so much actual and factually for his community as a FIFA-level um, administrator in football, as a coach, coaching um, the likes of even Darren Sammy as a youth in terms of cricket, as a, a school, former school principal and active in the community, knows all of the people's issues and so on. But the people saw the glugler of Shastney, and maybe they'll put him back again. But when it comes to education, there is definitely a differentiation in the philosophies. So when I, I, I feel it, I go to my constituency, I go to other people's constituencies, I see the state of the schools. There's some schools that are 50 years old or, or older. And we've not spent money for years on maintaining these schools. So I'm being asked as the Minister of Finance, make money is immediately available, which those funds are not necessarily available. Okay? But I believe that the curriculum needs to change. And before you design or build any new buildings or fix up the buildings, you must understand what that curriculum is. And so if you're going to change the design of the buildings, then you know that you're changing the design of the buildings. And we're building schools for the future. So what I've tasked the Ministry of Education to do is give me a sample school for the future. So when I go to other places, like in Canada, and kids are on iPads and the stuff is in the cloud. The people of Miku North, they have wisened up. They have wisened up. And this thing about building a model school in one year 
after not having given them a room for their children in four years is not going to be swallowed easily. Madam President, in, in spite of that being said, if you look at it a little further, there is actually no allocation in the estimates for that school. So, I mean, if there was an intention to even start the school, you would have expected in the estimates of expenditure to see an allocation. And I can point you to the estimates, Madam President, and tell you that if you look under the section that deals with allocations for schools, on the secondary schools, there is only one secondary school where any allocation is made for. And Madam President, the only school is the George Charles Secondary School. We can refer to page 600 of the estimates, and you will find that there is an allocation for rehabilitation work on the George Charles Secondary School, page 600. That is the only school an estimate, an allocation was actually made for. But the government is coming to tell us now that they are going to build a brand new school in Miku in one year. And they couldn't build one room in four years. I leave that for the people of Mikunov to deal with. Madam President, on Monday we had another cohort of students who wrote the common entrance exam. And two of these students happen to be my children. So I'm very concerned about the next five years of their secondary education. Madam President, I remember coming to this Honorable House one September and making a strong plea, I even made a press statement, to ask the government to pay attention to the preparatory works that have to be done at the Binfield Comprehensive Secondary School in Beaufort. And at that point, a promise was made that there was going to be a block, an ex a new block built for the Form 1s. Mm. To date, Madam President, with all the $10 million I heard about this morning that was spent on, on education, $10 million, the children of Ufort, Grace, Deriso, Miku, and Larishus, and so on, are still housed at the Ufort Primary School, the Form 1. No block, no place for them. They are still sharing another compound with a primary school, our Form 1. So when they move to Form 2 in September, the new Form 1 is coming in. I need to know where the government has made provisions for us to put them. We're not going to put them in the stables, Madam President. They are not horses. They are dignified young people. And my children are going to no stables. I'm from the South. They are going to be placed in a school as dignified children. They have to be placed in a decent place. And I expect that the government will come, will come good. Because we do not have much time between now and September. And a cohort of students for any of the schools in the South would be anywhere between 60 and 120 students. So this is a serious matter. We need to stop playing games with our children. If you want to play your games on platform and, and you know, with your, with your political rivals, that's fine. Don't play games with our, our nation's children. So, Madam President, the $10 million that has been boasted about, to this date, we have children sharing the compound of another school. And the same is occurring at the Miku Secondary School. We still have children going to class in the primary school. But you talk about $10 million. I'd like to know what has been done with that $10 million. What percentage of it has been spent on consultancies? Consultancies. Retooling, retraining. Telling teachers what they already know. You know? And then you, you, you say you're spending money. You have to get value for the taxpayer's money. If you're going to spend $10 million in education, there must be some kind of value. 
it must show that you're getting value for it. And while people may not think of it, September is approaching, is getting closer, and with so much uncertainty, doesn't seem to matter that we don't have answers for so many questions. But we have answers for two things. One is that St. Lucia is going to be reopening its borders for international people, tourists, visitors, whatever you want to call them, to come into St. Lucia this time next week, next week Thursday, July 9th. Tourists are going to be coming. That is one thing that we are certain of. The second thing that we are certain of is that Mary Isaac is fantastically unaware and uninformed as usual. If non-custom were matched with beauty, then Mary would be Beyonce. What are our entry protocols? What can visitors who book a flight to St. Lucia expect? According to Health Minister Mary Isaac, we're not completely sure just yet. Nelsia Schalmein begins tonight's broadcast with this report. St. Lucia's entry protocols have been the subject of confusion for some time now. The general understanding roughly one month ago was that visitors to St. Lucia were expected to present evidence of a negative COVID-19 test within 48 hours of boarding their flight. Two weeks later, after much opposition from commercial airlines, we adjusted our policy, as tourism officials indicated that visitors would now be tested upon arrival. Ahead of Wednesday morning Senate session, however, Health Minister Mary Isaac indicated that things are still being considered. Well, right now we are still deliberating on exactly what the protocols will be for coming in. We developed protocols before, but looking at what is happening in the region to some of the islands that have already opened their doors, we have started to reconsider and we are still... Um, looking at the pros and cons and trying to figure out exactly what to implement here. Although we had a plan, we have gone back to revisit that plan. And I'm not sure up to this, up to yesterday I know that was the case, but by this morning there's a meeting and um, for all you know we may be finalizing those protocols. The minister indicated that she would not be in attendance at that meeting and so updates may not come from her. I asked the minister whether we have settled on any specific protocols at all. We have settled on some, but and we had a complete plan prior to this week. Um, but looking at what is developing in some of the other islands, like Jamaica, that has opened their doors and so on, we have decided to um, revisit some of these protocols. In Antigua, a group of visitors who visited that island have threatened legal action against the government after being subjected to a COVID-19 test and then testing positive. The minister says that all of these factors are being considered. But with so many things still under consideration, is St. Lucia actually ready to welcome visitors to the island? We have been dealing with chartered flights throughout um, this COVID environment, um, especially coming to Humanora. So this is not new to us, especially since it will be like the very um, one flight at a time. It's, it's going to be very scarce, the flights coming in. So we believe that we are sufficiently um, capable and able to handle um, what is coming in. We have already put something, in, put protocols in place to, to, um, to restrict the number of planes that come at any one point in time. So 
this is why we have done that. And even the, the hotels, when they open, it's not going to be everybody opening all at once. It's going to be a very select few. Surprisingly, the minister then went on to assert that there was never really a full reopening of the borders on June 4th. We have decided to open on the 9th of July. Um, June, June 4th was a previous, um, not a deadline so to speak, but it was ve very controlled, the June 4th semi-opening. It was not open to everybody on June the 4th, as you can see. It was a very select few. For instance, the flight come in to pick up the farm workers. Um, these people, that flight was allowed to come and leave. There are flights that came to pick up to repatriate nationals, and these flights were allowed to come and leave. Most of these flights came down empty. So I do not know that there was a June 4th opening of our, inter of our borders. In contrast to the minister's assertion, however, according to several news reports as well as official posts from the government of St. Lucia via stlucia.org, St. Lucia's international borders have been open since June 4th as phase one of the responsible reopening plan. With a new target date of July 9th to welcome the island's first international visitors since closing its borders in March, there are only eight calendar days remaining to settle on a formalized suite of health protocols by which incoming passengers will be expected to abide. A formalized suite of health protocols finalized. First of all, I'm still trying to find out if she said most of the planes came down empty. How many of the planes came down with ministers' children on them? And why do they get treated any different from the amount of solutions that were stuck overseas? You said that you've handled chartered flights, and that gave you all of the testing, and you were able to work out the protocols. But it's seven days, this Thursday to next Thursday, seven days, and we are going to be officially open for COVID once again, even though we have managed it fantastically. The government has managed it fantastically from the healthcare standpoint. Apparently, we are complacent. So we are now going to be opening next week, and we still haven't finalized the protocols. So my questions are, first of all, if you haven't finalized the protocols then what exactly is the training that has been going on with the hotels that are opening? One. Two, if you haven't finalized the protocols as the government, shouldn't you finalize the protocols first, then establish the date second? Does that mean that the hotels establish the date for you? Does that mean that you are basically at doing the hotels or the hoteliers bidding? I don't understand. I mean, let's think about this. You have seven days left, because this clip is from yesterday, last night, and you're going to tell me that you have seven days, you have not finalized the protocols, but hotels are already preparing to open. Let's see if we can find an example. When the Sandel St. Lucia chain closed its resorts in March due to COVID-19, 14,000 workers were displaced. As part of the government's phased reopening of the borders, the chain is planning to reopen its doors on July 9th. However, it seems quite unlikely that all employees will be returning to their jobs, although that is what administration is hoping for eventually. Training for staff has already begun and COVID-19 protocols are being developed as health and safety remain priorities. We started training um, our people during March. We started sensitizing them, educating them, um, working with them. Um, as you may have known, 
standard result international developed the platinum standard of cleanliness. Um, we also have um, embraced um, and and con and edit, continue to educate our people on the St. Lucia um, protocol. During the closure, the hotels in the took a project to upgrade the facilities in an effort to prepare for the adjustments that the coronavirus pandemic is sure to bring. This includes retrofitting washrooms, laundry facilities, and medical centers. The chain intends to continue providing the luxury and gourmet amenities which the Sandals brand has come to be renowned for. The Sandals chain will be taking its cue from the Ministry of Tourism and the Department of Health and Wellness as it seeks to chart the way forward. In anticipation of the the, um, phase reopening of the industry, um, we're looking to it in a responsible way um, and continue to, to stay close, continue to engage um, and listen to what the, the Ministry of Tourism and the Ministry of Health and Wellness um, is doing, continue to, to, to be guided by them. Mr. Anderson is hoping for a smooth transition. So Sandals is training people to its standard of protocols, yet the government, who would be the official arbiter and prescriber of protocols, has still not finalized their protocols. Hmm. Then now, for every protocol there is a cost, because Sandals is a tourism plant. They are not a healthcare plant. And the government has already indicated that any health Uh, facilities or facilitation, the costs and the implementation will be done by the Ministry of Health. Now, we're a broke country that's trying to get civil servants to take a 50% pay cut. We don't have proper testing on island, consistent, rapid testing, and all of those things, like other countries like St. Vincent and Grenada and so on have in Dominica. But yet, we are bringing people in And we are going to send health people from Ministry of Health. We're going to send medical resources, nurses, doctors, and so on to establish the enclaves that we spoke about. And yet still one week before, we are about to put our nation in massively increased risk by allowing tourists to come in. Europe will not allow Americans to come in, but St. Lucia will. America is in the middle of a second wave, a surge. Every time you put on CNN... BBC, Fox News even will tell you, NBC, CBS, ABC will tell you, and you can go online as well, that the case is record numbers in Florida, in California, in Texas. They're having to pull 19 states with surges, but we are looking to open up for tourists while our actual country is shut down. So even if we wanted to benefit from what's supposed to be the tourism dollar, even though the tourism plants are owned by private, by private um, companies, private investors or owners or whatever, the rest of the country that wants to benefit from that would have its hands tied behind its back. Here's the one hand that would be tied behind its back would be because under a state of emergency, many businesses are still closed. And on the other hand, they're saying that they would keep the, the tourists essentially in quarantine. They still would not be able to access many of the tours, restaurants. They would not be able to go to the market or the P-tours or go on zip line or go on ATVs or go to so-and-so's restaurant here and bar there. They can't go. There's no grocery Friday night. So what are we doing? 
once again caught before horsism. But the logical minds are trying their best to tell them that we had and still have in every door that's closed, a window is open. In the worst of situations, there is an opportunity. And we had and still have some window of an opportunity for us to reposition our economy. Because when you hear Andre Paul or Timothy Polio or Rick Wayne say, so what are we going to do? We need the Taurus. And um, there are 15,000 people out of work. Yes, there are 15,000 people out of work. But if you open tomorrow for tourists, you're going to have 15,000 people out of work still. Maybe you'll get 14, 13, 12, maybe 2 or 3,000. And those people are going to be right in the face of perhaps asymptomatic people with COVID. Bring it into the communities and blow up our healthcare costs. And then we have to shut down the country again. Because what nobody's telling you is that in the time that we have been successful in mitigating against COVID, coronavirus, we have not added resources in terms of more ventilators. We don't have Rihanna. We don't have maybe Cooks or Tedison or one of them can say that they're going to sponsor a, what, a ventilator. We have supposedly nine ventilators, four on order and another five on island. We need 100 to have a chance, 200 to be good. It's not, we're not a country that can't handle a surge. We can't handle anything. We can't handle anything. If 20 people have COVID in St. Lucia, then 11 in big trouble. Huh? Make the sign of the cross. Sign yourself. I don't know. I don't know. But let's listen to the Senator Mauricio Thomas. Madam President, there is an opportunity for us to pursue a different economic order. An order which will be based on a critical review of our economic model. A new economic order would require the adoption of different approaches, new visions, models and tools for achieving sustainable development in all its dimensions, which should be the overarching goal. A model which is inclusive and equitable and which generates economic growth with decent work and value creation for all. Madam President, in reviewing the statement, the policy statement that is, I was particularly looking for evidence of that difference. Strategic policies and priorities which speak specifically to that different order that I speak of. Madam, I will take just a little while to highlight what I view as perhaps what that different order should look like. Madam President, we hear often the economic fundamentals of the country underpinned by GDP. And my colleague has spoke about GDP and gave us uh, the trend of GDP over a period of time, and of course we saw, and he highlighted many picks and drops. Is it timely, therefore, Madam, for us to perhaps look at our, econ our economy from the perspective of GDP growth, as well as GNP growth, or do we need to choose one, choose GNP? GNP, Madam, measures the value of goods and services produced within a country's borders by citizens and non-citizens alike, while GNP measures the value of goods and services produced by only a country's citizens 
but both domestically and abroad. Madam, it's my view that perhaps if we look at both approaches, that could tell us, give us a better picture. I am no economist, but there, there must be value in using the two approaches. When we look at GDP, for example, measures the value of goods and services produced within a country's borders by citizens and non-citizens alike. If we look at the hotel sector, for example, we have several foreign-owned hotels. I'm not sure how their contribution to GDP is measured, but we are aware that the structure of these hotels is such that most of the revenue generated by them end up being booked overseas. What reaches the banking sector here, what reaches our economy, is that minuscule amount which is used to pay wages and to do maintenance on island. Is it therefore possible that over the years we have not been calculating GDP accurately to reflect really what is generated by those large hotels? That is a question that we need to answer, but of course this evening, Madam President, I do not have the answer, but that order, that new order and that new economic model that I speak of may be required to analyze the true impact of the revenue generated by hotels, the total re revenue generated by hotels, and the impact on our economy. We have a global airline industry that is experiencing convulsions, massive convulsions. Companies and airlines that have been traditionally secure, that are looking for bailouts, others have collapsed. The new protocols have not been ratified or agreed to. People do not know how to quote-unquote coexist with COVID because how can you negotiate with a virus? How do you get it to sit at the table? Nobody tells you that. We have a tourism sector that is in flux. We have extremely limited resources. And yet we are going to make a 100% effort to expose our already extremely fragile healthcare system expose our people who have been further compounded in their poverty over the last four months, even people who are making money. There's nobody you can call rich who hasn't made money or dollar for four months, right? And even then now, we are going to take, and all of this, when we understand that out of every tourism dollar, only 15 cents stays in St. Lucia. 15 cents out of every tourism dollar, but we put in our health at risk, we put in our people at risk, we put in our, our economy at further strain because we have not done any kind of analysis of seeing what the cost of the healthcare effort or to mitigate the healthcare effort or the protocols. You've seen tents going up and the FFF getting business for some of these protocols that are going to come at the airports and seaports and so on. Cruise, the cruise industry is not going to come back for at least another year. Tourism is not going to come back. The, the 15,000 people are not just going to be rehired. And even if they are rehired, they're not going to be under the same terms. Has anybody asked the question, what are these people going to have to sign what is the health care protection for somebody that goes to work in a hotel as a security guard or doing housekeeping or whatever if they catch COVID? How many of the staff will be paid or be compensated? Will their families be compensated if they die in our health care? What's the plan for that? 
What's the liability insurance? Or will, just like they have hotels that do not allow people to join unions, will people have to sign away their rights because they've been starved by a government that could not find stimulus for them? Will they have to turn around now and go and take any job they can get and sign any document that's going to indemnify? In fact, think about it, folks. That you get in a job and you haven't worked for three, four months, but you, in order to be a taxi driver, have to now sign. And when you sign now, you have no rights to take anybody to court if you catch the same virus. Think about it. Just think about it. And you ask yourself, why is this being forced in this way when the local economy hasn't been opened up? How can you catch rain if you haven't even allowed people to put out their buckets, their bath pans, their whatever to collect the rain? How are we supposed to get whatever matriculates out, out, out of that tourism dollar if people's restaurants and people's barbershops and people's everything are closed? And then you realize what it is. I had to go to Richard Pryor to explain it to me. As soon as people, people don't hate each other, then people start talking to each other, and then they start talking to each other, they find out... Who's the problem? Which is? Uh, greedy people. Greedy So they keep people separated, and that keeps them from thinking about the real problem. That's, that's as simple as I see it. You can't get in a position of power, it seems, if you think like that. It seems that the only time you get in a position of power is if you like the people that are in power. To me, I mean, that's the way it goes. I mean, people that get to become executives become like the people that were already executives. I don't know, maybe... They go in with good intentions, but it eats them up. It's like a cesspool. You know, it just gets on you and it starts system, to eat, starts system. to eat. So why didn't we take the time? Why didn't all of our best minds in the chamber and other august bodies and other professional um, people and, and groups, whether it was the Bar Association, whether it was the engineers, architects, doctors, you name it, why didn't everybody come together, put together the type of think tanks that you see in the Zoom meetings for the, for the FAO and for the United Nations and so on, and how we could have said there and say, how can we reposition the economy? No, greedy people especially those who know how closely their personal interests and financial interests are tied to tourism and their hotels and their friends who finance their campaigns tied to hotels and hoteliers that they do their bidding for, no matter what. And in the meantime, the guy who has a little barber shop or a little machine shop or a little computer store or whatever, that's not a major campaign contributor. And we'll blame it and we'll say it's because of the jobs. But if we gave people stimulus to have them at least hold themselves, not $500, give the people proper stimulus, then we could have rebooted the local economy. But some people don't want to hear that. Guys, Mr. Prime Minister, and you agree that it, it can't be business as usual. As far as our economy is concerned, our dependence on tourism, there's need for us to look at other avenues. Tim, I want you to, you know, I, I think that I, I'm saying to you that, that we're going to be extremely open-minded and we have to be. And I would like you also to be open-minded. We don't know and you don't know whether, in fact, people being locked up in their homes for this long period of time actually creates more tourism than that. I don't know. So what I'm saying to you is that we need to be open-minded enough that once the economies open up and we have a better assessment of what's taking place, then we can adjust both our medium-term and long-term strategies. When will they ever learn? When will they ever learn? Tourism. 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 I heard Colombia or somebody saying that Colombia was talking about a virtual vacation. 
Is that going to be a sufficient substitute to what vacations were before? When will they ever learn? When will they Why do we continue to find us, ourselves as a nation in a continual war to fight to get common sense to prevail against this government? Why is this government so resentful of intelligent, common sense thinking? The troubling indicators continue, Madam President. Total exports down 12%, and the St. Lucia share of reserves at the central bank down 8%. Now, exports are our major source of foreign exchange earnings, in this case, particularly tourism. So with tourism down, it means that our share of reserve at the central bank is probably going to drop as well. Um, that is our savings account. That is the country's savings account held in hard currency, mostly U.S. dollars, at the central bank. It is one of our best indicators of our ability to import goods and services, which we need vitally to sustain ourselves in the months ahead, especially these months where we honestly don't know what's going to be happening. If tourism continues to underperform, it will cause those indicators to deteriorate further. We say that against an environment where unemployment is at 16.8%. That is a wonderful decline from where it was, but it is still extremely high. And we must also admit that youth unemployment is even higher than that. It's approximately double. Regional average for unemployment, Madam President, is 4%. That's the OES, OECS regional average for unemployment is 4%. We are four times higher than the regional average in an economy which should be leading the way in terms of the OECS picture. So even if we're not experts in these matters, and it might sound a little bit complex, our sense of unease is somewhat justified, and we look to the budget to ease that discomfort. These figures point to the need, Madam President, for substantial transformation in our economy. Not little bits and pieces, not a string of pretty jewels, but actual, consistent, and, and complex, integrated, uh, projects and programs and structural reform that is really going to change the basis of how we live and how we earn our keep. Um, the premise is that while the government may be doing its very best to manage the economy, the model itself really needs to change. Consider our wild fluctuations in gross rates. Oh, since I will just quote you from 2007 onwards wide swings in gross rates, a picture of random peaks and troughs, gains, losses, wiping out each other for the last 14 years across four administrations. March um, 2007, GDP growth marginal at 1.9%. That's really nothing compared to population growth, so you can discount it. Then we moved to a high of 4% in 2008 then down to negative 1.6. That is a swing of 5.6% downwards. 2010, zero. 2011, up to a high of 4.3. 2012, zero, back down again. 2013, more bad news, negative 2%. 2014, 1.3%, borderline. 
2015 back down almost to zero at one-tenth of one percent. That's the growth. 2016 up 3.4 percent. 2016, sorry, 2016 up 3.4 percent. 2017, 3.5 percent. So we get there two years of decent growth. What happens next? Down again, 2.6% in 2018, down again 1.7% in 2019, and 2020 looks like a contraction of between 10, 15, 18, 20%. So the growth rate is very erratic, and it means we're not building a smooth, steady improvement in our economic welfare. That is not a good picture for a developing country of our size and our potential. So, at the risk of being confirmed as a prophet of doom, I say we cannot run a country like this. We have to do better. This is really not working for anybody. And it's not working for you, and it's not working for you, given that the public is firing you and rehiring you every five years. That is irrelevant whether it's working for me or not, madam. My cause is not myself. My cause is the country and the people of St. Lucia. I know that we are bound by certain CARICOM trade regulations. We do not have all the latitude that we might like in terms of adjusting, adjusting our tax regimes um, and certainly our duty regimes. But we still have several options which remain unexplored. Articles 163 and Articles 164 of the Common External Tariff allow us to make strategic exceptions to duties. Also available to us are Articles 52 and Article 57 and Article 69, which is the Harmonization of Incentives um, legislation. There's also Chapter 7 of the Treaty of Shagaramas. And new industries can be promoted under Article 84, Schedule 1, Rules of Origin. So while we keep saying, or sometimes we say, that oh, we are bound by the common external tariff and we are bound by CARICOM to do certain things and we can't get out of it, the truth is that we really haven't tried hard enough to position our people, position our businesses and our economy to make the most of the Treaty of Shagaramas so that we can have better conditions for economic growth in this country. The CARICOM Development Fund has funding available to support our manufacturers. They are still waiting for a single application from St. Lucia. We can definitely do better to position our people for steady and sustainable growth. We also have options as to how border taxes are applied. Right now we are applying tax upon tax upon tax. The service charge, the levies, the duties, they are compounded. And that is how we get effective duty rates of up to 60% on regular um, everyday goods. We have to stop that because we are crippling growth in a world where average tariffs are coming down and hours are going up. That's an old colonial strategy of taxing the natives, extracting and transferring wealth out of these islands to other places. We have to stop that. We who have a conscience cannot still be perpetuating that injustice. We can do better. We must do better old colonial strategies, that has to stop. Now, if this budget is to be transformative, which is where we are at as a country, we need to start thinking about sustainable wealth creation. I could not find poverty statistics in the Economic and Social Review. Maybe I missed it, but I looked through several times. These are important indicators. 
nor could I find information on income distribution, business ownership, household dependency. These are the indicators that tell us if the economic model is working. Not just the same old standard things. We have to be concerned about the structure of the economy, not just the results which don't tell us who gets what. We have to know where the benefits fall and we have to know where we are failing. We also need to do more to increase access to technology and I'm glad to remark the things that are actually being done. But this is a time when digitalization is key to economic growth and more specifically it is key to continuity in education. If COVID has, COVID has taught us anything, it is that. And I'm not sure we need duty-free cards, but I am sure that we need to remove punitive duties on a host of technology and capital items so that our people can emerge into the next century. We have this practice of taking as much money from our people every time they are making a substantial, a substantial investment in themselves, we tax them. Whether it's house, whether it's land, whether it's car, whether it's computers, we tax them as if black people must not have anything that is good and decent. But you see, right now, everybody is just holding their collective breath as they watch their savings, their companies, their country, everything break down for the sake of counterintuitive governance. Truer words were never spoken. And certainly, this government operates very counterintuitively. So what should be happening? What should be happening? Well, folks, I agree with Adrian Auger. It's not because I'm an economist, Lord knows. It's simple. Open up the local economy. Remove the state of emergency. Let businesses open. They've been starved for four months. There, let money start to circulate. Let people go out. And I, one thing I will say from being in the creative industries, we were at pains to explain to people statistically how entertainment literally could drive an economy. What is Grosley without Grosley Friday night was a simple argument. But think about it. When you think of the amount of money that somebody like LeBron James makes, do you really think it's because of the people who paid for the tickets to sit in the stadium? Even if they're in the arena, 20,000 of them, they can't pay him. It's the television rights, it's the broadcast rights, it's the advertisers, those that want to make sure that they have a sneaker deal or they want him to drink Pepsi or 7-Up or Dr. Pepper. It's the same thing with Buju Banton, it's the same thing with Alicia Keys, it's the same thing with Drake, it's the same thing with Denzel Washington. It's about media and entertainment, Hulu, Netflix, all of these things. Right now, I, am, I will tell you, I get, and I was one of those that posited the idea of doing a virtual Calypso season. Folks, if we have truly contained COVID, we can allow for boat rides. And not just the boat ride that happened just this weekend for one of Chastney's um, youth people. But also, Chastney himself, about two, three weeks ago, was on a boat ride with the establishment class. About four boats, they reached Ascoshaw and everything. Even, um, what you call it, the marine police got to them. Take off the curfews on the fishermen. Take off the curfews on entertainment. Remove the state of emergency. Let events start happening again. Maybe, maybe we can have a Calypso season and have a carnival in August. And it sounds crazy. But if you keep our local economy open, then at least we can get ourselves back, get the blood pumping in the veins before we open up for tourists. And if we, even though we open up for tourists, we all know there ain't nobody coming here anytime soon in any kind of numbers. 
So we're just putting ourselves at more risk. Why not delay opening for at least until September and give us a chance to get our foot in again and let this government do what they're supposed to do. Give some stimulus to small businesses. Give some stimulus to the poor. Give some stimulus to the, those who have been made poor. Don't just give cacodontic amounts of $500. Give the people something that they can feel. Because you give somebody $5,000 now. Yeah, they're going to pay their, their rent that they've been owing. They're going to pay their bills. They're going to pay flow. They pay the internet. And they are feeding themselves. They can't even really afford to save that much money because they have been compounded in debt. They've been pummeled. But again, let's see if common sense can be heard. The balance between health priorities and economic reality has to happen. There would be little joy in surviving COVID if we all die of starvation. Since the COVID debacle began, we've lost four months of productive economic activity. Those who survived April and May are staring at empty coffers and empty hands into June, July, August, September. We have not leveraged our COVID-free status sufficiently. We took too long to open the domestic economy, and even now, we have restricted economic resurgence with heavy laws, fees, licenses, taxes, and protocols. Even as we relax some of the health restrictions, and thank God that we have, our public announcements are still telling people to stay home, to avoid communal activity at a time when there is no evidence that COVID is contagiously spreading in our environment. There is very little risk of contamination if we are to believe our local authorities, and we ought to be encouraging more economic activity. When you go to the villages around the country, you see too many people sitting idle, doing nothing, too many shops closed, too many businesses on the edge of bankruptcy. If we are COVID-free, we are COVID-free. If we are not, then let us say so. But the evidence suggests that we are COVID-free as far as the domestic economy is concerned. And as I had explained in an article not so long ago, we need to maximize that opportunity, that good result that we have, we need to maximize it. In the meantime, we are desperately seeking some viable formula for reopening our borders. We understand that. But we need to generate business among ourselves and make the most of what is left of the dollar and share it among ourselves. Indeed, with borders closed and consumption close to basics, this is the very time that scarce money is likely to circulate more successfully in the economy, circulate and recirculate, so that various businesses can benefit from each other and be more sustainable. This would create much-needed income for local business people and especially the self-employed who are not highly dependent on imports. Barbers, seamstresses, community shops, restaurants, transports, farmers, boutiques, tradespeople, hairdressers, artists, entertainment, entertainers, and the like. These people are not entirely de dependent on the tourism dollar. Let us get their businesses up and running. Let us allow them to go out and earn a decent standard of living. Policymakers estimate, policymakers estimate that only 15 cents of each tourism dollar remains in the local economy. If so, we need to identify where the other 85 cents is, reduce that leakage, reduce it over time over the next five years, 
for those who are coming into office or staying in office, an election promise and a strategy to achieve that would just about attract the attention of voters. That would give our people a greater sense of ownership in this conspicuously expensive lead sector into which we pour so much public support by way of incentives and land and other assets and cold hard cash. And that brings me to the arts and um, entertainment subsector, the creative sector. Madam President, when we closed down the economy and instituted the protocols of the COVID um, era, an entire sector became illegal. Illegal. It became impossible to have a party, a funeral, a wedding, a show, a recital. The whole sector was made illegal by these draconian laws which continue in force and need to be removed. There is no justification for having a state of emergency at this time. None whatsoever. And we need again to be honest about that and remove it. If we need a state of emergency at any time, that can be done within hours by the Governor General and ratified by Parliament with, for, for after seven days if Parliament is sitting and 21 days if Parliament is not sitting. We do not need to have these laws in place and I'm glad to see some nods of agreement coming from that side. It is unjustified. And not only that, Madam President, but the laws are so draconian. They subvert um, personal freedoms. They allow us to avoid all the rules of procurement and they allow people to run willy-nilly over private property and personal lives in a manner that is fascist. It cannot be justified. It needs to be removed. When I made that remark or similar remarks in a recent article, the judiciary was perturbed that they called to find out if what Adrian is saying is true. And when I sent them the regulations of, this, of the state of emergency, they fell into a dead silence. Shame on the bar. Shame on the bar for not saying anything, knowing full well that we have these kinds of legislations in effect, including a clause which says that the state of emergency shall override any other law in the event of a conflict. This is not acceptable. This is not how a democracy runs, and we need to change that. The phone lines open at 5727588. I know it's late, but I will try to take one or two calls. While I say, lift and remove the state of emergency. 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 How else can we put it? How does St. Lucia begin to climb out of this hole if we are, our domestic economy is being stifled while at the same time you want to bring people in from the worst places in terms of COVID that our healthcare system cannot handle and our local people cannot benefit from. You cannot rehire all of the 15, 20,000 people one time. If you gave each hotelier millions of dollars, which in a sense you are doing by the resources that you will be meting out to them, have them paying less than 7%, 7.5% in VAT, so you're not going to get the money back in the same way that you should. Most of them have concessions up the wazoo, some for 40 years. Good afternoon, caller. Hello? Yes. Yes, caller, go ahead. What's up, Chris? Well, I must agree with you. First of all, yesterday... 
I think a smart guy like you shouldn't have wasted so much time on this basketball thing. Mm. Both you and Norbert, we mm. had more important things, but yeah. still, you all did it. Yeah, you did. You, but, didn't, you didn't tell uh, Andre. Yeah, you, you. you didn't tell Andre and Russell how much time they waste kissing Shasnay's ass each oh, day. Oh, I don't know if they did it too. I'm <laughs> saying Norbert. I don't watch every show, but I heard Norbert say it, so I'm saying Norbert should yeah, have done yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's not very necessary. But anyway, let me just get to the point. Today, I will agree with you. From the beginning, I don't think the country should be closed for so long. But as the Prime Minister said, the HMO is making those calls. That, that doesn't so make any sense. That makes, hold on. No, no, I'm just telling you. That doesn't make I'm any sense. I'm not saying it make or doesn't make sense. I'll, I'll give you a turn because I have to hang up and listen to you. My phone mm. bill is high. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, though, I am one that's not agreeing with the country's closed for so long. I thought it, from the beginning, I said it should have been closed. It was closed, and I think there was a time because we are opening up Carolina many cases and the country and the prisons are open so i domestically it should be open i agree with you on that one but i'll still give you your pressure when i get it anyway listening <laughs> folks st vincent had no state of emergency and yet still they have less cases than us more testing than us the economy must have taken a battering but they adapted they increased food exports and agriculture that's what st vincent has done good afternoon caller Revolution. Revolution. I like it. I, I heard I heard um Ministry of Minister of Health says where's the oppression? <laughs> I see yeah boy, I laugh when I heard that. Eh? Well, Chris, let me tell you something. Uh, you see what is happening in this country? I want to believe for some reason the slaves that occupied this piece of rock was from a special place from Africa. <laughs> because I I I mean you you ain't Adrian making the point. Could you imagine a lawyer, guys who went to school who understands the law, would succumb to that, will accept that, that yeah. at 12 o'clock you have to rush, whatever you're doing, whether you're in the office finishing some work, that you have to rush. I mean, where does that happen? Where else on earth this could happen? We don't have it. If the virus was why we had this sort of emergency. But you see what's happening? It's for because politics. Alan Shafty want to use that just for political reasons. And people are allowing it to happen. And conclusions are... Look, look, just like the wearing of masks. I have had problems with many people. It's like they were asking for that crap because you are literally breathing in your carbon that you have actually, your body has rejected. You are now re, you know, putting it back in your system. You know, and nobody seems to have a problem. So I'm asking a guy, what, well, guy well, when, we gonna, when will we be told to? Well, I don't know. I said, are you prepared to live so? He said, yes. If to be. I said, Man, I'd rather die because well, I will well, not live my life <laughs> with a mask on my face. We do not have a virus. At what point St. Lucians will understand and start agitating? You know, whatever need have to be done, we have to take a stand. We cannot allow one man, one man, he's not even a St. Lucian born. We cannot allow this guy to tell us that we cannot go, we cannot do this, when there is no reason, there is no cause. We are clean. Thanks the Almighty, we are clean. There is no virus in this country for now. Why is the state of emergency? I want somebody to tell me. Exactly. I really want to get an answer for that. Why do we have a state of emergency in this country at this time? 
Have a good day, boy. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Now, I will never advocate for not wearing masks. I think that we have to wear masks and observe the protocols until not only is a vaccine discovered, tested, standardized, and it matriculates to all of the different countries and is in easy supply until St. Lucia has more ventilators and is at least over 100 ventilators because there are other pandemics. You heard potential pandemics. You heard of another swine flu that's coming out of China right now and they are trying to contain it. So this is the, is the test. But folks, again, why are we have this problem with the same colonial mentality? We would rather treat foreigners from countries where they could come down asymptomatic and come down and give us a disease. We rather make these people our top priority while we put ourselves behind a local economy. How can a prime minister go into a bar, sit down and have lunch while other bars are prohibited from opening? Does that make sense to you? Why do you have to take that, Sir Lucia? Why, why are we doing these things to ourselves? That's the question. It's a simple thing. Remove the state of emergency. You had the state of emergency. Four times you extended it by two weeks. So why not simply just do the same thing? Lift it. And we all know that if anything comes up, he can go to the governor general. And as long as he can wake him up, I'm sure it will not take more than a day for anything to be reinstituted. Just have the man there and just... The paddles, sign that, sign that, and he'll do it. So what's the problem? I don't get it. I don't get it. Folks, we now have to campaign for a removal of the state of emergency to allow solutions to breathe in some economic relief. We know the government is not coming to our rescue. So let people get on their hustle. And then, after that, you can check for your hotelier partners. And all of those displaced workers... Give them what you were supposed to give them. Give them what the IMF said they were supposed to get and gave money towards them getting. Not Guy Joseph and you and Nationwide and Fresh Start and all of your electioneering projects with Lynch and this one, that one, the other, Sipal and so on. But instead, give the money to the people for whom it was borrowed for. Let them hold themselves because they get no, no cruise ship for the next six months. They are getting on in no hotel in any kind of meaningful fashion or get paid properly anytime soon. We'll take our last caller. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, good Mark afternoon. Chris. Good afternoon, St. Lucians. I don't know that I can say it any better than um, Adrian has said it. I think he, you know, said everything that needs to be said. I have been saying for a long time that there is no state of emergency in St. Lucia and it should be lifted. It's a disservice to all of the people, especially the business people. I can't even imagine how much people are suffering over there right now. And the Chamber of Comatose won't do anything. I'm sorry? The Chamber of Comatose won't do anything. Well, um, Adrian is part of them, so I'm assuming he's speaking for them as well. Mm, Um, The others, well, they're not feeling the pinch, perhaps. Um, Mm. You never know where people are getting benefits. Uh, Shastney is not not where he is because he's a one-man, you know, powerhouse. He's where he is because certain people are allowing it to happen. Um, I'm sorry, Chris, I can't can't hear what you're saying, though. No, go ahead, go ahead, I'm listening to you. Okay, he's a one-man, he's not a one-man powerhouse. Certain people are allowing it to happen. But in terms of the economy, I think they really do need to open up, let the businesses run, uh, you know, insist that people wear masks 
and social distance as much as they can. Uh, but if, in fact, we do not have COVID, I don't see the reason for that if we're not importing COVID uh, at some point. Having people come in from the U.S., I don't even understand how we, we're going to allow that to happen because anybody could carry, anyone, and they can give it to someone in the, in the community who will carry and be asymptomatic as well. Yep. And what happens when they come into contact with numerous people before they even realize that they're asymptomatic but is spreading. So I think the border really needs to be closed and Adrian's advice really should be followed and allow businesses uh, within the community to open. But the government has to give an injection of cash to the people because without that injection of cash, there will be very little to spend. People are already emptying their little savings to buy and to pay bills. You know, Flo isn't making calls to, to, to fix people's service. And I'm sure part of the reason for that is because a lot of people are not paying the bills, and so they're not able to make those, call, those house calls to fix your service. But if we give an injection of cash, those bills will get paid. People will pay their bills. It's simple. The money will start to circulate again. You know, maybe they call more people into work because now folks are paying. You know, it, it's, it's, you know it's very simple. I don't understand why they're not seeing it this way. Open up the place, give significant amount of stimulus packages to the people, stop giving all the money to the hotels and calling it quarantine, <laughs> and help the community, help the island, for crying out loud. It's going to be really, really bad if we don't. So maybe they ought to listen to what Adrian had to say again and follow it. That That's as simple as that. Thank you very Thank much, Kuala. Thank you very much. Well said. Well, folks, my time is up, but I will say, SOE is supposed to be for state of emergency, not for state of elections. Not for the sake of elections, as that being Chastney's SOE, means that the entire country has to suffer under a state of emergency that is unnecessary. And if the whole thing is that you need Taurus so much, Taurus, Taurus, well, since Chastney seems incapable of placing solutions over foreigners in his value system, I went to great lengths to find a local who could appeal to his sensibilities so maybe he could see us the same way that he sees Taurus. What's happening, bro? What's, what's yeah, going on, what you, what you've been up to, bro? I'm right now. I'm skinning up with fish, man. I'm dirtying that bitch, bro. Ain't it? Ain't it? Hell, man. You gotta want him. I'm doing that thing like I do my teaching in the morning. Yo. Yeah. Looks what like. Hell, bro. What is it's it you're bubbling there, bro? Bubbling. Oh, man, to... we're just having some rice, you know? Don't pop in the f***ing thing, man. I'm warning you. <laughs> Don't get dirty with me, bro. Ain't <laughs> it? <laughs> The opinions expressed on this TV program by the hosts, co-hosts, guests, and call-in listeners or chatters are solely the opinions and responsibility of the original source who expressed them.
They do not necessarily represent the opinions of UTV or its affiliates.